Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a podcast produced by Mayo Clinic. This week, we're excited to share with you a talk from the Selected Topics in Internal Medicine Conference held in Kauai, Hawaii. Today's talk is Trouble Sleeping? Tips on Managing Insomnia by Dr. Michael Silber. Dr. Silber is a professor of neurology and sleep medicine, as well as co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sleep Center. It's a pleasure to be here, um, and especially to talk about something which I guess re may resonate with many of you if you've had a little jet lag in the last night or two. Um, but of course, today we're going to be talking about general insomnia, not specifically about jet lag. Um, this last talk was a hard one to follow. Um, nobody has ever, even though people think they're going to, nobody has ever actually died from insomnia. Um, so nevertheless, a very practical and important topic. So I have no disclosures. I'm going to be talking about the off-label use of certain medications. And let's start with Shakespeare. O oh sleep, O oh gentle sleep, nature's soft nurse, how have I frighted thee that thou no more wilt weigh my eyelids down and steep my senses in forgetfulness? Or any of us who've had even transient insomnia will identify with that. I'm sure Shakespeare must have had insomnia to be able to write as meaningfully as he did there. So let's start with a case history, and I think it's one that you've probably seen many times in your practice. A 52-year-old woman who comes in and says, I've decided it's time to get medical help. I've had trouble initiating and maintaining sleep for 10 years. When you push it a little bit, it started the time of her divorce and worsened a year over the previous year since her menopause. During the day, she's fatigued, but can't sleep even if she's desperate and lies down and tries to nap. She has a background of depression, but you assess this is now well controlled for many years on a low dose of citalopram in the morning. So, um, which of the following is the most appropriate initial treatment? Okay, delighted to see that 73% would like to do cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and that is in fact the correct answer, and we'll discuss that as we go. So, what I'm going to outline here is firstly some tips on the diagnosis of chronic insomnia, then how to determine the contributing factors in a patient with insomnia in five minutes or less, um, the ABC of CBTI, a primer on the Z drug, some alternative medications, and putting it together. So let's start with chronic insomnia. How common is it? Well, 30% of us have occasional insomnia. I think if I asked you to raise your hands, I bet it'd be more than 30%. Let's do that. How many of you have occasional insomnia? It looks like about 90%. Um, maybe it's higher in physicians. Um, and 10% have chronic insomnia, I won't ask you that. Okay, oh, I went too ahead. Um, insomnia is commoner in women than men, it's commoner in older people than younger, it's commoner in people with chronic medical illness, and it's commoner in psychiatric disorders. Now, what about the diagnosis? Now, <laughs> um, the International Classification of Sleep Disorders, Edition 3, in that the lumpers won over the splitters, I was on the steering committee of this big project, and when the insomnia group presented their findings based on a lot of data, it really resonated with me. Let's get rid of all these complex subcategories. Let's make it easy, especially for primary care physicians. There's now one disorder. It's called chronic insomnia disorder. 
and is characterized by the patient reporting at least one of difficulty initiating sleep or, and or maintaining sleep and or waking up earlier than desired. And it can't be explained by inadequate opportunity, in other words, that yours, um, there's something wrong with the bedroom or you aren't allowed to sleep um, or circumstances for sleep. It can't be any of that. And you must have had it just technically three times a week for at least three months to call it chronic. Um, and these, here's my five-minute approach to factors of causing insomnia. Now, I work with, I'm a neurologist, I work with a lot of psychiatrists in our multidisciplinary sleep center, and they want an hour and a half to assess a patient with, a new patient with insomnia, and I respect them very much for the depth they do it, but I can tell you it's not necessary. You can do it fairly fast to make that assessment, and I've given you here the mnemonic OOP3RS, if you like that sort of thing. Um, if you don't, let's work through it. First, you've got to ask yourself, are there physical factors that cause or, or contribute to this chronic insomnia? Because it's usually multifactorial. There's usually more than one factor. So starting on the right, pain, very important, whether it's generalized fibromyalgia pain or localized pain. Then restless leg syndrome, a whole talk of its own. We can't talk about that this morning. And then obstructive sleep apnea generally presents more with hypersomnia than insomnia, but some patients it triggers long periods of wakefulness and is a factor. And finally, under the physical factors, I've put an O other, hot flashes, nocturia in older people, GERD, obviously, and then use of caffeine too close to bedtime. Then once one's quickly checked, there's no real physical factors, are there psychiatric things? Is there active depression? Is there active anxiety? And in some people with chronic insomnia going way back, was there a PTSD initiation of the, of the insomnia? And then still, I'll put it under psychiatric, um, current stressors. Now, of course, we're talking about chronic insomnia here, but stressors can be chronic, or you may have chronic insomnia that's worsened recently because of some tremendous financial stress or family problems or marital discord or something like that. When you've worked through all that, and really there's not much, the depression's well controlled, there's not much physical things, we're then almost certainly in the category of psychophysiologic insomnia. Now, what does that mean? Well, psychophysiologic insomnia is a subgroup of contributory factors to chronic insomnia, consists of somnia, insomnia due to a maladaptive conditioned response in which the patient learns to associate the bed and the sleeping environment with heightened arousal rather than sleep. It's 11 o'clock, they're yawning, they're exhausted, they want to go to sleep, they lie down in the bed, and the next minute um, they're suddenly wide awake again. Now, it, traditionally, that's often associated with an acute stressor sometime in their life. There was acute insomnia, the stressor settled, but the maladaptive behavior persisted. But I can tell you, not in every patient do you identify it. In our patient here, yes, there was the divorce, but you don't always find it as neatly as that. Now, screening for depression and, and anxiety. We use the GAD-7, Generalized Anxiety Disorder Score 7, very simple to complete, and we use the PHQ-9 for depression. I always talk to them about it as well because you know, scores are fine, scales are fine, but with experience, as you all know, you get a good inner feel of whether you're dealing with somebody with current major depression or not, but we do screen them with this. It takes them about 30 seconds to complete each of these. 
Okay, so you've diagnosed chronic insomnia disorder. Very important to address the active factors, pain, depression, restless legs, sleep apnea. You've dealt with that, and now you've got a patient with chronic insomnia with particularly psychophysiologic factors. And we've said cognitive behavioral therapy, 71% of you said that's the first-line approach. Well, there's good news about it. First, it doesn't need a psychologist. It doesn't need a sleep specialist. When I get my new sleep fellows in, often from pulmonary backgrounds, they are very, very tense about this. They think this is some mystical thing that only psychiatrists and psychologists can do, and I tell them, you know, this is no different from what you do every day of your life, counseling diabetics, counseling asthma patients. It really isn't difficult. You've just got to learn what you need to do. It can be administered by a nurse or by any physician. It can be brief. The early studies showed weeks of therapy, totally impractical. It can be done in one to two sessions, 60 to 120 minutes, probably less than that. And what's very neat these days, it can be delivered through the internet. And I draw your attention, we'll come back to this in a moment, to an example called the Shut Eye Program. This is not our program. We have no commercial relationship with them. We looked at a number of these programs a couple of years ago and decided we liked this one best. Okay, so this is this New York Times cartoon I just love. Um, here she is, look at her face. It's four o'clock in the morning, and she says, resting. I've learned that. That's quite as good as sleeping, so why am I worrying? And then suddenly, Ebola. Why are you assessing about Ebola? There's no Ebola at West 83rd Street. Yet, maybe it's coming. Um, I know what to do. If I just lie here and relax, I'll fall right asleep. I'm not moving a muscle come hell or high water. I'm drifting off to slumberland. F this effing quilt, Ebola. And off she goes again and sets up her vicious cycle again. Okay, so let's talk about the ABC of CBTI, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Well, the first thing is the cognitive component. We do want to educate the patient a little bit about normal sleep, um, correct faulty beliefs and attitudes about sleep, um, address unrealistic expectations and catastrophic thinking. If I don't get seven hours sleep a night, I'm going to die. And some, you know, there are patients who develop this catastrophe, especially in the darkness of the night. Um, then we come to the first practical in, um, approach, and that is do not stay in bed if you're unable to sleep. This technically is something called stimulus control therapy. But the idea is don't go to bed until you're sleepy. Try some relaxation techniques that will teach you. There are two types of relaxation techniques. There's the physical one that our lady um, was trying in the cartoon, relax your body, try yoga, all these sort of things. But then there's also mental um, relaxation, which personally, on the times I get insomnia, it's that type of mental um, relaxation which helps me. And the classic idea is you're here on Hawaii, you're lying on the beach when it's not raining, um, you can feel the warm sand under you, you can feel the wind, you can smell the sea and bang you asleep. Uh, that particular image doesn't do anything for me. I've, uh, other images work for me, and each person has to develop their own images. But if that doesn't work, and if you're unable to sleep and you estimate 15 to 20 minutes has passed, the classic idea is get up, go to another room, and distract your mind. And the way I tell to patients is I say small worries and co concerns become great big dragons in the darkness and the silence of the night. You cannot tell your mind to shut down. It just doesn't work. 
So you've got to distract your mind, so you do something else. If you enjoy reading, you take up a book or a magazine, not something too exciting that you won't want to go to bed, and not something so boring that your mind drifts off into the anxieties again, and you then read. And once you read, you stop thinking, your mind calms, and you start yawning, getting ready for bed, and back you go to bed and try again. Now, there are variations of this. For some people, it's better to do it in bed. The, the classic teaching is out of bed. Then the third of these bullets for CBTI is to increase your homeostatic drive to sleep by restricting time in bed. A lot of chronic insomniacs spend too much time in bed because they don't sleep. They'll go to bed, say, at 10 and stay in bed till 8 in the morning. And that's far too long in bed. Um, they become deconditioned. They become fatigued. So the idea is stimulate sleep by actually restricting the time in bed. Don't stay in bed for more than what you average to be your estimated sleep time and add 30 minutes to that. Now, for practical reasons, let's make a cutoff of six hours. Don't stay three hours in the bedroom. Um, get up at the same time every morning, irrespective of how you've slept, and then you slowly increase your time in bed as you estimate your sleep time improves. This is called sleep restriction therapy. There's more to it if you want to do it in the classic way, but that's the principle. And finally, correct extrinsic factors affecting your sleep. Um, clock watching is a terrible factor contributing to insomnia. I say to patients, what does it really matter if it's 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock in the morning? Is it going to change your behavior in any way? Get rid of the clocks. Take them away from the bedside. Now today we've got to talk about the cell phones and the iPads and everything else. Um, get rid of them. Move them away. Avoid caffeine, nicotine, and alcohol before bed. Exercise daily. And it doesn't really matter. Studies have shown what time of the day, as long as it's not the couple of hours before bed, because that pushes your body temperature up and may, in many people, inhibit sleep. But morning, afternoon, it's fine. And then deal with the pets on the bed and the sleeping husband on the bed. Um, occasionally, it's the sleeping wife, of course, but just statistically, it's more often the sleeping husband who's snoring away there. Um, and those extrinsic factors are, are, are not so easy to deal with, especially pet lovers who've always slept with the five cats on their bed and the one on, on the person's face. Um, not so easy to deal with, but ideally that has to be worked out as well. Okay, so how effective is all this? There's some patients who come in and say, this is magic, you know, this is garbage. I don't believe in this nonsense stuff. Well, there have been multiple controlled studies, meta-analyses, showing that it works. Um, sleep latency is reduced by about 20 minutes. The wake time after you've fallen asleep is reduced by about 30 minutes. And the effect is sustained after you've worked through such a program for as long as 6 to 12 months. There aren't really longer studies out there. It is the recommended first-line therapy for all patients with chronic insomnia disorder. Let's go back to that shut-eye program. I was very pleased to see the biggest study ever done on an internet-based um, CBTI approach. It was published just at the end of last year. And here's a randomized controlled study of 303 patients. They used the shut-eye program for six weeks. Um, it's, it's an ongoing self-help program. It's not free. The patients have to pay for it. Um, controls received patient education about sleep, but no formal CBTI, and they were followed by patient diaries for a year. And if you look at it over here, you'll see sleep onset latency 
you can see as time passes, even a year's follow-up, it's totally sustained the improvement. Looks like it's about down to 20 minutes sleep latency. There's a fall in the controls. Everything in sleep is very placebo-influenced, but it's statistically different. Wake-after-sleep onset drops also to about 30 minutes, and with the controls, really, it's still at an hour or so. So definitely works, definitely helpful. Okay, now let's move on now to the patient who says, I'm not trying this, or you just haven't got it set up. I don't like the internet, and you haven't got it set up in your practice, or it doesn't work. Are there drugs we should use? So let's talk briefly about the Z drugs, the benzodiazepine receptor agonists, other FDA-approved hypnotic agents, non-hypnotics with sedating properties, and then over-the-counter agents. So let's start with a short primer on the Z drugs. These are non-benzodiazepine drugs, but bind to the benzodiazepine receptor. And there's the benzodiazepine receptor up on this left-hand corner. It's a transmembrane receptor. It mediates a chloride channel. Um, it binds not just benzodiazepines and benzodiazepine receptor drugs, but also barbiturates and alcohol. It's an important receptor, and that's how it works. They are mild to moderately effective hypnotics. Meta-analyses have shown they increase sleep latency by between 10 and 22 minutes. They reduce wake-after-sleep onset by 11 to 13 minutes, and increase total sleep time between 22 and 45 minutes. If you think back to the CBTI figures, less good. CBTI is better, but they work. Now, they don't work in everybody, and they don't work all that well, so if you put somebody on these drugs, you need to monitor the response. And if they're getting nowhere and you say, say it's no real difference, time to take them off. Um, there is little evidence for tolerance or rebound on withdrawal of these drugs as opposed to the classic benzodiazepines. Most patients won't keep asking you for more and more, and most won't have any proper bad effects if you decide to stop them, even after using them a long time. And even though they are potentially dependence-producing, they are, after all, bend to the ben bind to the benzoreceptor, um, true problems with abuse are relatively uncommon. However, they may induce complex amnestic behaviors. We were the first to describe the sleep eating with um, these drugs, and a certain percentage will get up in the night totally amnestic or quasi-amnestic and eat very bizarre foods. They'll wake up with crumbs in the bed or the kitchen in a mess. Others will sleepwalk more classically, and there are occasional cases of sleep driving. Um, they also result in some amnesia during the night. If somebody on these drugs gets a phone call in the middle of the night, they may talk for 10 minutes on the phone and have no memory of it at all in the morning, and that's a potential irritation or distress to the patient. There are concerns about effects on morning driving, especially in women compared to men, older patients, or with the longer half-life drugs. And there's definitely an increased risk of falls, especially in the elderly. So just bottom line there, definitely lower doses in, the, in women and in the elderly. All right, so let's go back to our patient. She does try CBTI, not terribly conscientiously. There's some success, and she says, you know, this is really better, but I'm still waking up in the middle of the night three times a week, and I can't maintain sleep. Can you give me something to just help me on those three nights a week at two in the morning when I wake up? Which of the following drugs would be the most appropriate? Okay, um, either Zolpidem or Trazodone. Okay. Um. 
<laughs> well, the correct answer is actually zaloplon, and we'll talk about why in a moment. So these are the Z drugs. There is zaloplon, which has an ultra-short um, half-life. There's sublingual zolpidem, and that also has an ultra-short half-life. There's classic zolpidem that everybody's most familiar with, short-acting. Zolpidem CR, which the manufacturers make a big fuss of, but actually the half-life isn't all that different from the ordinary zolpidem. And then there's the intermediate-acting drug, Ezopiclone, longer half-life. And you'll note that the doses are all different. Even the same drug, say Zolpidem SL and, and Zolpidem, have got different doses. Um, so you've got to be familiar with the dosages. So how do you use them? Well, a person who says, sleep onset insomnia, once I get to sleep, I sleep through the night. Well, you obviously want the shortest acting drug you can, and that would either be Zaloplon or the sublingual Zolpidem. If they say, I fall, I, I, it's, the whole night's terrible, I can't fall asleep, and when I do, I wake up multiple times, then we want the short-acting drug, Zolpidem, or Zolpidem CR, if you like, or if that, when you try it out and the patient says, it's fine, but I still wake at four in the morning, you could try the intermediate one, Zopiclone, bearing in mind that might cause more drowsiness in the morning. And then if they say just the opposite, I fall asleep okay, but I wake up during the night, and I just want something to take during the night. The two drugs that can be used during the night are the ultra-short-acting Zaloplon or sublingual Zolpidem, but they've got to have at least four hours available in bed to sleep if you're going to use it during the night. You can't take it at six in the morning and have them wake up at seven. They'll go and crash their cars in the morning, and you've got to judge it carefully what the response is. So if we don't like the Z drugs, and a lot of people don't like them because of the drowsiness in the morning potentially and the risk of falls in older people and the amnestic reactions, although we have many patients on them long term when it's the correct approach, what else is out there? Well, the newest one is a completely different mechanism. It's an orexin antagonist. Now, orexin or hypocretin is a relatively novel neurotransmitter produced by a small group of cells deep in the posterior hypothalamus, and it's actually the conductor of the arousal orchestra. It controls the whole of arousal. It stimulates release of catecholamines and other agents to keep you awake. So it would be lovely if we could block this drug, th this neurotransmitter, maybe we can induce sleep that way when somebody can't sleep. Um, of course, most of you will be familiar with hypocretin and orexin as the neurotransmitter that's absent in the much rarer condition of narcolepsy, which causes sleepiness. But here we're using it differently, and here is the first FDA-approved um, orexin antagonist called suvorexant. There's, there's the dosages. The studies have shown that, yes, it works, but unfortunately not a miracle drug, probably as effective as Zolpidem, the same numbers that I gave you for the Z drugs. Um, there was concern that perhaps we'd cause narcolepsy by using these drugs, causing cataplexy, collapses with laughter, hallucinations, sleep paralysis. No definite cases have been reported. Like any hypnotic, it can cause early morning sleepiness. There appear to be no withdrawal effects, and the abuse risk is unknown. So a lot of geriatricians are saying maybe this is a better drug to use in the elderly, but I just say be cautious. We haven't used it long enough to know whether it's really any different from the Z drugs in risks of falls and the rest. The other drug using a different mechanism has been around a while, a while Rameltion. It's a melatonin 
agonist. Now, melatonin is produced by the pineal gland. It normal melatonin secretion rises at night, so the concept is if you can pour in more melatonin or melatonin agonist to the melatonin receptors, you'll induce sleep. Well, the problem is this is, has a very short half-life, and the studies have shown that it only affects sleep onset, does nothing for sleep maintenance, and increases it by 14 minutes, uh, decreases it by 14 minutes. I said increased, of course it should be decreased. You don't want to increase sleep latency. Um, no effect of wake after on sleep onset, and frankly, I found it a disappointing drug. So then what about the non-hypnotics? If you don't like these drugs, can we use other agents that are not FDA necessarily approved for insomnia? Well, of course, here we've put in the sedating antidepressants. Now, the first of these is actually FDA approved for insomnia. Doxepin is a classic tricyclic antidepressant, been around forever, but this manufacturer produced a new form. The only difference is it's ultra-low dose, three to six milligrams, and it works. It puts people to sleep. There are anticholinergic side effects, of course, like any tricyclic, and you can gain weight. Now, it's, of course, expensive, and I'll just give you a little hint. You can get generic 10 milligrams doxepin, break it in half, and you've got 5 milligrams doxepin, and the patients will thank you for saving them a large amount of money. Trazodone's been around a long time. Um, the evidence as a hypnotic is surprisingly weak, considering how many people prescribe it. There's a risk of priapism in men, and orthostatic hypotension, so it's not harmless, and it may work for the right people. The third of the antidepressants is metazapine, and the evidence is weak of its use as a hypnotic, but it is given at night, does seem to induce sleep up to a point. Then, what about the alpha-2 delta ligands, gabapentin and pregabalin? Side effects are definitely sleep, so people have used them to induce sleep, 100 to 900 milligrams, but these drugs are also not without side effects. Weight gain, unsteadiness, dizziness in older people, and if your patient's depressed, in a certain percentage of patients, they increase depression. And then finally, the antipsychotics. Quetiapine is beginning to be used for insomnia. I would strongly caution against this. This is a drug with multiple side effects. It increases vascular risk and vascular compl um, complications. It is not a good drug to use for insomnia. It should be restricted for patients who um, have psychotic disorders or, in certain selected cases, demented patients with uncontrolled behavior. What about the over-the-counter agents? Well, antihistamines have been used forever. Here's diphenhydramine as the classic example. Low-quality trials have shown there is definitely a hypnotic effect, and it can be useful for self-treatment in mild insomnia, but of course, it can also cause drowsiness, dizziness, and in the elderly, it should be avoided. These drugs can cause confusion in the elderly. And then, well, we talked about melatonin agonists. Why not make it a lot cheaper and just use over-the-counter melatonin? Well, there is actually little evidence that melatonin helps insomnia. People use it. A lot of your patients will say, oh, I've tried melatonin. Maybe it works a little. Maybe it doesn't. But the evidence is not strong. Okay, how are we going to put it together? Well, first, for those of you who think of Rochester, Minnesota only in winter terms, um, that picture, believe it or not, is from Rochester, Minnesota in summer. We have one, some of the nicest summers in the entire country in Minnesota. Um, so first of all, consider and address contributing factors in all cases of insomnia. Then CBTI is the first-line therapy for all chronic insomnia, doesn't need a specialist, few sessions, internet availability, and long-term effectiveness. 
Drugs may be useful if CBTI is ineffective, if it's unavailable, or is declined by the patient. For mild insomnia and younger patients, they can try sedating antihistamines. But if prescription drugs are required, consider the Z drugs, or if you like, the new Suvorexant. Only moderately effective. Be aware and monitor for the side effects. Use low doses, especially in women and the elderly, and discontinue if ineffective. You can consider the sedating non-hypnotics if comorbidity is addressable by these drugs, if, um, or if contraindications to the hypnotics. So if you've got a depressed patient, maybe using trazodone or, rem or um, remeron for insomnia and depression may be helpful, though in the setting of depression, often insomnia has to be treated independently. Um, if there's pain, gabapentin may be a great drug to try. Um, and again, if there's a history of drug abuse, high fall risk, and cognitive impairment, um, again, these drugs may be better than the Z drugs. So what is our goal here? As with treating all sleep disorders, really the goal for our patients, as John Keats expressed it nicely, is a bar quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams and health and quiet breathing. So thank you very much. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Mayo Talks by Mayo Clinic. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please subscribe and share with a colleague. You can find the video of today's featured podcast along with presentations from other Mayo Clinic medical conferences at mayotalks.com. Check us out. That's mayotalks.com. Mayo Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.